morning. morning. Welcome to West Hills. It's great to have you with us, even on such a dreary day. Um, Ken, can you bring the shades up for us? I personally, I I love thunderstorms and just being reminded of the power of God and doing a lot of explaining of all of this to Ellery these days and how, uh, what makes God cry like this and um, when God gets allergies too and sneezes and that's the thunder and all of that. So, uh, I just love seeing God's glory and beauty in creation, so we can all experience that as we listen to his word as well. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here at West Hills, um, and it's a, an honor and a blessing, joy to be with y'all uh, this morning. If you're new here, welcome especially, and it's great to have you at West Hills, and we hope you'll be blessed um, in our time together. You're catching us in the middle of a sermon series on Second Peter. Um, we are currently going through Second Peter. We're in chapter 2. Um, and as, uh, by way of reminder, this is the last letter that Peter will write that will make an, its way into Scripture for us. And so Peter has told us in chapter 1 that as long as I am with you in the body, I will stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Peter, Peter knows he's about to die. And so Peter says, I, I'll make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter tells us, I want to give you only what is most important, what, what is most necessary for you uh, in, your, in your salvation, in your discipleship, growing up into who you need to be in Christ. And so it's very interesting then that Peter spends so much of his time in his last letter here on warning us against the dangers of false teachers. As we're going to see in the next coming three weeks this, together in studying this, it's, it's the primary emphasis of, of his chapter 3, and it's the exclusive emphasis of chapter 2 that we started two weeks ago and will finish today. In fact, this chapter is the most extensive diatribe on false teachers in all of the New Testament. And so two weeks ago, Gary began chapter two with an excellent exposition for us of of verses one through 10. Uh, And he pointed out that these false teachers' characteristics are uh, sixfold. And so we'll just recap that quickly for you. One, they disseminate destructive heresies, uh, verses one and two there. They deny Christ, specifically in verse one, they deny Christ's lordship. Uh, thirdly, they are driven by greed. They despise authority. Because they deny Christ's lordship, they want to be authorities unto themselves. Fifth, they're defiled by ungodly passions. And finally, yet, they still manage to draw a crowd. Peter tells us many will follow them. And so we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 10. And so if you have your Bibles with us and want to open to 2 Peter 2, uh, verse 10, we'll start there. Um, And while you do, let me briefly outline this sermon for you and kind of orient you to your bulletins there. So Gary detailed the characteristics of the false teacher. This morning, Peter is going to give us in verses 10 through 22, their condemnations. And as we will see, these false teachers, they stand condemned on four separate counts, the alliteration of which, I will just tell you, I stole from John MacArthur to give credit where credit is due. Um, And so for each of these four main points of your bulletin, I want to, as we work through them, uh, show, show us not only a description of the charge that Peter brings against these false teachers, why it is that they're guilty in, in their historical context. What was it about them then, these first century false teachers, that merited such a scathing review? 
but I want to go beyond that to then translate his reproofs for us into our 21st century context today. Because unfortunately, as we're going to see, there's nothing new under the sun. And so we still see these, these false teachings cropping up in our day and age today, just in different ways. And then lastly, lest this whole exercise turn into a finger pointing, finger wagging, you dirty heretics, right? And, 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 and feeling so we can feel good about ourselves. We, no, we want to we ask the question of how is God calling us today in contrast, but by implication, how is God calling us to think and live and act differently because of the negative examples that these false teachers serve for us. So that's where we're going to be this morning. And so if you would, as you're able, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Second Peter 2, uh, 10 through 22, I'll read for us from the ESV. It'll be on the, um, on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls, they have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For, the, for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you come now and show us what you would have us see and hear from your word. Father, may this not just be a finger-pointing exercise, but may we humble ourselves to hear the, the rebuke, the reproof, the training and teaching and righteousness that we need to see in the text this morning, in your word. May we be humble enough to, to hear that, to receive that, and to change by your Holy Spirit power and by your grace to allow ourselves to be changed this morning in ways of godliness and righteousness for your glory and for your sake, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So four condemnations. The first 
is that these false teachers are condemned by their presumption. Verses 10 through 13. Their presumption, I love this definition of the word presumption, unwarrantable, unbecoming, or impertinent boldness. It's not just that these false teachers are arrogant. It's that they are undeservedly so. Do you know anybody like this? When I was thinking about an example this week, my mind went to a, 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 a guy, a, a friend actually, that I play volleyball with. And it's not just that he's arrogant, because all the best players, I'm talking way better than me, they have a certain deserved kind of swagger to their game. But with my friend, it's, it's that he's not any good. Right? It's, it's that he's, he's arrogant without, he doesn't have the game to back up his talk, and he shoots off his mouth about things that he's not able to deliver on and do, and then he doesn't back it up. That's these false teachers in Peter's day. They have this undue swagger about them. And Peter gives us an example there in verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now there's two kind of interpretations of this. John MacArthur sees glorious ones as reference to uh, ev- the evil fallen angels who are cast out of heaven pre-fall in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, and 3, um, that Peter references in verse 4 for us, if you look back at that. And that would mean that these false teachers are actually pronouncing judgment against the demonic realm, which seems okay to condemn the, the, the demons, but even the angels don't do that, Peter says, because vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, Romans 12. John Piper, on the other hand, translates this phrase as they blaspheme, quote, the glories, the more literal kind of Greek there, and notes that everywhere else that Peter uses the word glories, he refers to Christ's glorious second coming. And so Piper notes that it would be odd for Peter to refer to demons as glorious ones. And so instead, Piper identifies their blasphemy here with the scoffing that we're going to see next week in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, against Christ's second coming. And so the, the false teachers then are, are, are blaspheming and, and pronouncing judgment against Christ. And, and yet, even still, the angels, the heavenly angels, reserve judgment for God alone, righteous judgment of these false teachers. Now, I think the point for us is whichever of those two interpretations you prefer, Peter's, Peter's main point remains unchanged, which is that false teachers, they shoot their mouths off about stuff they have no business talking about. matters of which they are ignorant. And so I think the takeaway, as we think about not just first century, but today for us, is we need to be on the lookout for presumptuous teachers who with brazen confidence make absolute pronouncements about things which they have no business talking about. Do you know how how I know that Pastor Gary is not a false teacher? That's a phrase you probably didn't expect to ever hear from the pulpit at West Hills, right? Do you know how I know he's not a false teacher? One of the defining marks of false teachers here is an utter lack of humility. And so I think back to a few weeks ago in a sermon where Pastor Gary made a comment to the effect that he's devoted nearly the last 50 years of his life and his ministry to studying God's word. And because God wants himself to be known by us in our study, he he honors and blesses that. And and, 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 and that Gary said he feels like he's got about probably 97% of his, ans- of his questions answered in Scripture, but there's still that 3% left that he said he'll, he'll just have to wait until he gets to heaven to figure it out. And so f- for starters, I would just say that's a pretty impressive percentage, and so we should be thankful that we have a head pastor here who knows God's Word so well. Uh, and may that be a, an example to all of us, myself included. But even then, Gary readily admits admits that there's still that 3%. 
There's still that 3% of questions that we could ask him that he would have to say in humility, I'm just not sure. It's, It's not clear in God's word to me. And Peter's point here is that's okay. That's, that's actually a good thing because we're human. And even the angels don't proclaim to know everything, don't presume that much. But the false teachers do. With them, it's always 100%. With them, it's always, thus saith the Lord, I received this divine special revelation because I'm special. There's something special about it. God doesn't just give revelation like this to anybody. You, you gotta come to me to get these answers. Beware of presumptuous teachers as you peruse blogs online, as you listen to the radio, to podcasts, as you go to your own personal study. Ask yourself, is there humility in this person's teaching? And so likewise, the exhortation for us now, that third sub-bullet bullet point, is that we too are called to be humble, especially in the non-essentials. We should proclaim the gospel with all boldness. There are a few hills that we die on. But there are many, many beliefs that we have to hold with a pretty loose hand in humility being willing to say, you know what, I've studied it, I've thought about this, I've prayed about this, I've consulted you know, teachers that I know I can trust, and I think this is my informed opinion, but I still don't claim to know with absolute certainty, 100% like these false teachers. I I don't claim that because Jesus said, blessed are the meek, right? The meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And isn't it cool to think that there are gonna be lots of surprises waiting for us in heaven? The false teachers, they're not okay with that. No surprises. I've gotta have it all figured out. I think it's pretty cool, personally, that we're we're gonna one day in heaven be like, so that's how you created everything? Genesis one and two, we were supposed to interpret. We were all way off, right? We debated this whole creation evolution. I think that's, that's a good thing. We should be grateful for that because it humbles us. And likewise, Peter says, there are also sadly lots of surprises waiting for these false teachers in the afterlife as well, who were so sure of their teachings and so, so sure of their fate. And yet he says in verses 12 and 13, they will be destroyed in their destruction. Condemnation number two is that false teachers are condemned by their practices, Verses 13 through 16. Now, this is interesting. Notice that Peter doesn't actually point out many of their false teachings themselves, does he? Rather, he points us to their behavior, the fruit of those teachings in their own lives. He highlights, I think, their behavior rather than just their beliefs, their teachings, because I think it's more easily identifiable for the church to, 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 to see these things. And so, Jesus has already told us, remember, that you'll know a tree by its fruit. And so Peter's essentially saying, sure, we could dig up the whole tree, the whole tree and examine the root structure that gave rise to all of this above the ground to determine what kind of tree it is, or we could just look at the fruit. Jesus says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No, every good tree bears good fruit. Every diseased tree bears bad fruit. And so we'll know it by its fruit. So what is the rotten fruit of these false teachers? Well, just look at all of, all of what Peter tells us there. They revel or party in the daytime. Even for the debaucherous surrounding Roman pagan society, that was considered distasteful. But not for these false teachers. They count it as pleasure. They are proud of their debauchery. They revel in their deceptions. They're proud of their lying. They love to lie. They have eyes full of adultery. Literally, 
full of adulteresses. And so in other words, Peter's saying, every woman they see, they mentally undress, they objectify her, they view her as nothing more than a sexual conquest. They are insatiable for sin. Sure, we are all guilty of sinning. These false teachers, they love it. They live for it. They are starving for sin, hungry. Their, spirit, their sinful appetites can't be satisfied. They have hearts trained in greed. The Greek word, word is literally disciplined. They discipline their hearts after greed. Like Balaam, the infamous Old Testament prophet from Numbers 22, who was paid by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the people of Israel because the king feared Yahweh because he's heard stories of what Yahweh did for his people Israel in freeing them from Egypt. And so Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel so that Moab will be spared. Peter says that's who these false teachers are like. They're false prophets who not only oppose God's will and bring curses upon God's people, the new Israel, his church, but who seek riches in worldly gain from doing so in their greed. And so Peter reminds us in verse 16 what happened in Balaam's case. God not only rebuked Balaam for his transgression, but he used a mute donkey to do it. Literally, and now you'll have to forgive me because this is probably the only time I might get to have biblical license in Scripture to say a cuss word from the pulpit. It is literally a dumb ass. So Peter is in effect saying, remember the lesson of Balaam. When you oppose God in your greed, you are being dumber than a dumbass. And so how do they wind up there? How, what, what is it about these false teachers' beliefs that could have possibly led to this level of sin and, and revelry? Well, Peter doesn't make it explicit in the text, but I think he gives us some clues about what their beliefs are here. And most commentators agree that they are the first generation of antinomianists to ever infiltrate the church. Now, an antinomian is literally means against the law, all right? So they pit the law, God's law, against God's grace. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New... And so they distort the doctrine of grace to say that God's grace has now done away with the law. Completely, God has replaced the law. But Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, I came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus, in fact, says, I came to bring a new law, that you would love God and love your neighbor. On these two commandments, this law, all the old law and the prophets hang. And so when Paul rhetorically asked the question at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, Paul asked, what then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Their answer, the antinomians' answer is, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. Like, like give me that gospel, right? Where, where, where Jesus died for my sins so I can do whatever I want. I'll take that gospel, please. And they failed to go on and read the very next verses out of Paul's mouth. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live? still live in it. We were buried with him by baptism and death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul says, our old self was crucified. We put it to death. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. For freedom's sake, we've been set free. Why would you go on worshiping 
God from your prison cell. Like, check the door. It's open. Walk out into newness of life. That's what he died for, so you could have it. You don't have to be enslaved to your sin any longer. That's the gospel. But they only, they, they've got a half gospel, a partial gospel, these false teachers. And so antinomian false teachers today, I think, I think we still see this cropping up in the 21st century in subtle ways, but, but that are no less destructive, perhaps even more dangerous because they're harder to recognize today. Not a lot of pastors going around partying with wild women in the middle of the daytime anymore. You just don't see a lot of that. The greed part, yes. I mean, the greed part actually, um, as Gary talked us through two weeks ago, uh, and, and specifically pointing to some of these examples today with the prosperity gospel, right? And Joel Austin and preachers flying around in their private jets from million-dollar mansion to million-dollar mansion. That whole strain of distortion of the gospel, yes, exists overtly still today. But, but some of the other antinomianism of today can take on more subtle but, but more, even more devious forms. So one of the most pervasive today that I would just point us to is the extent to which pastors today often shy away from preaching the full counsel of God, Acts 20, 27, and specifically from preaching anything that feels at all like law, like requirement, like expectation, like a new life that Jesus died to purchase for us, like, like exhortation, rebuke, admonishment. These are all biblical words that have all but dropped out of our language in the 21st century church and a lot of churches, evangelical, so-called evangelical churches included. Why? Why, why, don't, why do we cheapen the gospel in that way? Well, because it doesn't fill seats. I mean, some people will come if they're being called to, to give. Some people will come to church if they're being called to serve. Some people will come if they're being called to sanctification, to lay down their lives for, for strangers, for their enemies, the things that Jesus preached. But many, many more people will come if you just leave out that difficult part. Because <laughs> everyone wants to hear all the good stuff that Jesus did for them. Right? Just like everyone wanted to come listen to Jesus when he was healing them and feeding them. But as soon as he started to to ask them to deny themselves, take up their crosses, lay down their lives, sell all their possessions and give it to the poor. The crowd's thinned out a lot. So that's what happens today. And so I, I want to just challenge us to think about the fact that I think there's a reason that roughly half of the New Testament is about what God has graciously done for us in the person and the work of Jesus. And then the other half of the New Testament roughly is about how we are called to respond to that grace, what we do about it, how we apply that in our lives. And so any sermon, any Bible study, every personal devotion, every application of Scripture at, at all, I encourage you to ask those two questions. What is God doing in this text? And secondly, how am I being called to respond to that? Because if you, if you don't get both of those answers, you don't have the full, the full gospel. If you get... Just the one, if you only get your response without God's grace, that's called legalism. 
trying to earn your way to, to God's grace. But on the flip side of that, if you only get God's grace without our response and how it ought to change us, to move us, no challenge, no exhortation, no personal application. If you just leave every message feeling awesome about yourself, power of positive thinking, but not compelled to actually go out and change and do anything differently at all and live differently, be, be transformed more into the image and likeness of Christ, that's antinomianism. And it's all over the church today, and it's killing the church. And we have to address it. And so how do we do that? What is our role in that? Well, I think the first takeaway is simply don't settle for it. We can't be people who settle for that kind of gospel. Don't settle for antinomianism, not in your personal study, not in the teaching you listen to outside of West Hills, not even here. You can give feedback to Pastor Gary and I. We appreciate that. We value that kind of feedback. You can tell us, Pastor, to be honest, I felt a little beat down by the message today. I struggled to see God's grace in the midst of all your call to response. That balance felt out of balance, felt legalistic. But on the flip side, Pastor, thank you for your encouragement but I'm, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do with that message. Like, how, how am I supposed to apply that? Can you help me apply that in my life and actually change and, and be sanctified by that? And secondly, I think another way we can apply this to our own lives is we refuse to live like antinomianists. We, we refuse not to allow, so triple negative. We, we allow God's grace to transform us more and more into Christ's likeness as we obediently follow his good new command to love God and love one another. We stand out in the world. Insofar as we do that, we stand out in the world because we'll be distinctive. We'll be light and salt in a dark and bland world. They will know us by our love. And so we never use God's grace as a license for sin. Romans 6. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so let's live like it, right? Condemnation number three is that these false teachers are condemned by their promises in verses 17 through 19. Their promises. Peter says, as if it weren't bad enough that these false teachers live licentious lives of their own, no, they go beyond that to entice others into following their wicked ways. How do they do that? Well, by their promises. Verse 19, they promise freedom. Specifically to those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. To the weak, to the vulnerable, the new believers who are not yet mature enough to know any better. These Christian infants have barely escaped from the total error of denying Christ altogether, only to become seduced back into worldliness by people claiming to be Christians and their sensual passions of these false teachers. Note again, it's not what these false teachers teach that lead people astray always. It's their lives. It's their models, their examples. These new believers see the, the false teachers and they say, wait a minute, you mean I can be a Christian and it won't cost me anything? I don't have to, <laughs> I can keep partying in the daytime. I can keep, you know, sleeping with whoever I want. I can keep using my money however I want, it doesn't have to change any part of me. I'll take that, that brand of Christianity. And, and they overlook the fact that in doing so, first of all, that they're, they're, sacri- they're forfeiting the goodness of God's law. God's law is good. It's for our, our pleasure and our enjoyment of life, for human flourishing. But also in doing so, they're actually once again submitting to a yoke of slavery, like Peter says. They call it freedom, but it's really slavery. It's slavery to corruption. 
Paul, uh, Peter says. And, and Peter's metaphor here is perfect. It's, it's perfect as someone who has grown up in the desert climate of Palestine that he would use this imagery. John MacArthur says, in, in ancient Palestine, sea breezes would periodically bring in mist that appear to signal rain, but sometimes the atmospheric moisture stays only briefly and produces no significant rainfall. The land is left dry and parched, and the inhabitants are left disappointed. These false teachers are just like that. They are mirages in the desert. You think you know, that you're going to quench your thirst just like you've needed to, you stumble upon them, but it's, they're a fleeting mist, a fleeting mist that promises rain, promises happiness, but they can't deliver. The hedonistic pleasures that they promise are so temporary and so empty, you wake up in the morning with a hangover feeling twice as bad as you did the night before. And so in the same way, these false teachers of today, they're waterless springs. And I'll just point you to two tangible examples that you can think about some more. We've harped on the prosperity gospel, but it's so prevalent today in subtle ways in American Christianity. I think we have to address this. Prosperity gospel is based on the premise that God's great desire for us is to bless us in this lifetime with health and wealth, and that if we are faithful to him, that he will be faithful in return to us and do it. Now, I want you to consider the corollary, the corollary belief that comes along that, the effect that that belief has on how we process things like suffering and death. Because the corollary is, if we aren't experiencing the health and wealth that Joel Austin or anybody else is in this life, that that must mean that I'm not faithful enough. And, and so I read a heartbreaking article this week as I was researching for this sermon entitled, Death, the Prosperity Gospel, and Me, in which the author recounts the various ways that she has seen people within this movement react in the face of terminal illness and death. And it's really, really sad. Sometimes it's with shame and guilt because they're treated like lepers who have been subjected to a test of faith and obviously failed miserably. Or on the other end of the spectrum, she recounts watching a man dance wildly around his sister's deathbed in her final moments of life, shouting to horrified family members that her body can yet live if they will all just muster up enough faith. This is really sad, sick stuff. This is rotten fruit. Their teachers promise hope, but it's not Jesus' hope. It's not hope for the life to come. Eternal hope, eternal life is not good enough for them. No, they want it here and now. Material blessings, physical blessings. And so in promising these things, they leave masses of people wildly disappointed. Hopeless, waterless springs. Consider a second tangible example in today's world. Liberal mainline Protestantism. Whole denominations of, of, of once reformed Orthodox Protestants who have gone astray, and I'm not just talking minor dis disagreements over ancillary issues, I'm talking denying the gospel of Christ in favor of a less controversial message. In many cases, their gospel has just become watered down to Jesus came to show us how to be a good person. I've literally heard that preached from pulpits before. And any notion of human, human sinfulness separating us from God the necessity of Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, his literal resurrection to provide us with the power we need to be raised to new, life, 
new life, the need for all people to come to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that no one can come to the Father but through Jesus, all these essential pillars of the orthodox, historic Christian faith have been traded away. The gospel has been cast aside. It's too narrow, it's too exclusive, it's too offensive. I don't want a God who would restrict salvation that narrowly, who would satisfy his wrath that brutally, who would even express wrath in the first place. I don't want a God like that. And so they, they boil and melt down all the parts of scripture that they like, and then they, make, they rebuild for themselves a God of their own imaging and likeness that they can choose to worship a gospel that is more palatable, even though it's devoid of any power. As Richard Niebuhr uh, famously put it, I love this quote, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. It's their gospel. Unbiblical, no power to save. They are waterless springs. And so, lest we just point fingers, what can we do about all this? What is our role today? Well, three things, three takeaways I see. First, grow in, grow in maturity in your faith. Grow in maturity in your faith. Because remember, these false teachers, they, they entice unsteady souls. Your best defense, then, is a good offense. And so, Peter wants, says, I want to build you up in the faith. He outlined how he wants to do that in chapter 1, if you remember. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith. Build your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brother affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, are being built up, then they'll keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will keep you from being tossed about and, and, and swayed by these perversions of false teachers. As Paul put it in Ephesians 4, I I want to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to mature manhood so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and uh, craftiness and deceitful schemes. So again, great word picture there. I hope that none of you planted, decided to plant any new trees yesterday because... (laughs) the storm system that just came through, right? But the, the mature oak in my front yard, I mean, it barely moved. We want to be that oak, be built up in the faith, mature, firm. Secondly, second takeaway is confront false teachings. We want to confront false teachings head on. It's actually one of the qualifications of elders that we looked at um, last week, touched on, in Titus 1, holding firm to the trustworthy word as they were taught so that An elder may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and so to rebuke those who contradict it. But that exhortation is not just for elders. I mean, it's a qualification for being an elder. But it's for all of us. We all are called to be knowledgeable enough, but also to be bold enough to confront false teachings head on, to see them as opportunities to share with someone the true gospel, to show them, look, this gospel The biblical gospel is is even better, so far better than the false gospel or the half gospel that you're professing belief in. It's better than that. Which leads us to point number three. Takeaway three, 
Point unsteady souls to the true hope in Christ. Point them to their true hope in Christ. The weak, the vulnerable, they are thirsty for good news. They're waterless springs of the false teachers they won't do any longer. They're thirsty for it. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water water that I give him will never be thirsty again. That water will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus said, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart flows rivers of living water. That's the water they need. That's the water they need, friends. They need the real thing, the living water. Finally, point number four, condemnation number four. False teachers are condemned by their perfidiousness. Now, before you get too impressed, this was a new word for me this week too. Thank you, thesaurus.com. It means deliberately faithless, treacherous, deceitful. Synonyms include false, disloyal, unfaithful, traitorous. We've all heard the saying, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, right? Well, it turns out with Jesus, that's not true. Peter says it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness in the first place than after having known it to turn back and reject Christ. Now, it's a point of clarification here. We don't have time to go down this whole rabbit trail, but it's an important one, so you should study it for yourselves. At West Hills, we believe that on on the basis of a lot of scripture that I don't have time to get into, but I've got the references here if you want to ask me afterwards, we believe that if you have truly been saved, you cannot lose your salvation. That He whom the Son has set free is free indeed, that God keeps those who he calls. But how do we square that belief then with what we find here in verses 20 through 22? Because it sounds like Peter is saying that these false teachers were saved and then they fell away from that. But it's important for us to note the specific words that he uses because he's he's specific and he's unintentional. Peter doesn't actually say that they were saved. You don't see the words salvation saved, any of that in there at all. And he definitely doesn't reference it in any kind of eternal sense. Peter merely says that they had escaped the defilements of the world. They've heard about Jesus. They started coming to church. They learned enough to know that Christians are, that we live according to a higher calling. And so they managed to avoid worldliness for a season. That's good. But knowledge of Jesus is very different than knowing Jesus, right? Plenty of people were raised in church and know all about Jesus. And perhaps by God's common grace, that knowledge has even saved them from making some pretty horrible decisions in their lives and and maybe avoided some, some worldliness and defilements of the world. But that knowledge about Jesus cannot save them in the eternal sense from the ultimate enemy, death and hell itself. Only knowing Jesus personally as one's own Lord and Savior can can save you in that way. Notice that Peter specifically says in verse 20, I think this is interesting, he says Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He doesn't say by the knowledge of their Lord and Savior, right? Even in in his pronouns there, because that's never who Jesus was for them. Jesus never was their Lord and Savior of these false teachers. He's our Lord and Savior, believers who I'm writing to, to be careful. 
And so instead, for them, Jesus was always just a means to an end. Early on, Jesus gave them a way to escape some hardship in this world, some, some defilements. And so they, they said, okay, great, I'll, you know, Jesus, I'll get on board, and they, they come to church. But then they realize when they, when they start to miss the ways of the world, like, yeah, it was kind of, they look back on their college partying days, like, wait a minute, why not just hold on to Jesus and all of his grace and, and go back to our worldly living? After all, doesn't his grace cover a multitude of sins? I mean, does, doesn't his grace forgive all sins, past, present, and future? But Peter says, in even entertaining such a thought, they have proven themselves to be perfidious, to be fakers, to be traitors. They were never saved in the first place. They were never truly believers. Like John says of his false teachers in his churches in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be plain that they were not at all of us. Right? The proof is in the pudding. When they leave and go back to this way of worldliness and they, they break fellowship, the unity of the spirit with, with historic orthodox gospel-believing Christians, they prove themselves to be phony intruders by their falling away, their perfidiousness, their deliberate faithlessness. And so today, we need to be on the lookout for those who would claim the name of Christ, but whose lives would prove that they never actually repented and turned to him for their salvation at all. Rather, they've just been using Jesus as a means to their own end. Peter says it's one thing to have never known Christ at all. It's a whole other thing to look Jesus squarely in the eyes and to turn and walk away from him. The author of Hebrew puts it this way. Hebrews 6, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. Many, many in our day and age today have fallen away from the true historic gospel, from Jesus, from the faith, and we will know them by their fruit. So we need to beware be on guard. And for us, by contrast, our two final takeaways, by contrast, what do we have to learn from all of this? First of all, I would say, make sure, friends, that you have counted the cost. Count the cost of faith in Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 14, if any of you want to build a tower, won't you first sit down and get estimates and make a budget? Otherwise, you're going to run out of funding halfway through production and end up looking like a mute donkey with half a building. Some of y'all get that later. Now, you've got no money and you've got half a building and no roof and no windows. No, you first count the cost. You've got to count the cost on the front end. And some of us, if we don't do this, we run the risk of having bought into a gospel of Jesus who came to show me how to be a nice person or of trusting, trusting in a gospel 10, 30, 50 years ago that said, you know what, by praying this magic prayer and being another person that we can add to our baptism tally at our, at our revival or whatever, you know, you can get it, your magic ticket punched into heaven or whatever, and, you, and, you, and it doesn't actually require anything of you. It's antinomianism. It won't require anything of you. And it's not the gospel that Jesus says that anyone who 
comes to me and does not hate his own life by comparison, hate his mother and father, die to himself to live for me, take up his cross. If anyone doesn't do that, he can't be my disciple. He doesn't just want to be our Savior. He wants to be our Lord. He deserves to be our Lord and Savior and King. And so finally, because of that, stay the course. Second takeaway is we stay the course. May it not be said of us, friends, that we were perfidious. That when the going got tough, we fled. When it got hard to have faith, like the whole point of having faith, and when we need it the most, that we turned away. But instead, may we be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have run the good race, I have kept the faith. May our bold examples of faithfulness be a powerful witness to an unbelieving world of the truth of this gospel and its power to sustain us, even through the toughest of times, especially to those who need it the most, the weak, the vulnerable, even the false teachers. May we be a witness to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ that is so much better than some of the false teachers of the first century, the false teachers of the 21st century would have us believe it is. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to save us, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And yet, Father, we thank you that you love us enough not to, not to leave us there. That you love us to save us in the midst of our sin. We don't have to clean up our lives to come to you. No, you're not impressed by our, our good deeds. It's by faith alone, grace alone, through Christ alone. And yet, Father, we, we thank you that you love us enough not to leave us there. Like pigs to wallow in the mire, dogs to continue eating our vomit, that you rescue us from us. You, you grab us out of that. You want a better life for us, and you die to make it possible. And you show us what it is in your word. So, Father, help us to live not like antinomians, who say yes to the gospel and then no to sanctification and no to growing up and maturity in your word, discipleship and sanctification. Father, help us to be a people who have a passion for deepening our roots, passion for strengthening our, our trunks and our branches so that we might be able to withstand not just the perversions of the gospel by false teachers, but all that this life has to throw at us. Storms outside that we see through the windows remind us of the storms of life that come. Some of us may be in those storms right now, and if we're not, we will be again. Life is hard, and yet it's good because we have a hope that transcends our circumstances and a faith that sustains us. Father, may this be true of us Build us up in our faith, in your word, for our good and for your glory. 
in Christ's name we pray.